Why worry alone? The Rocky Mountain Myrick Suicide Risk Management Consultation Program provides free one-on-one consultation for any provider, both community and VA, who serves veterans at risk for suicide. For more information about this program and to check out all our resources, please visit the consult page at www.myrec.va.gov slash bisn19 slash consult. To initiate a consult, please email srmconsult at va.gov. Hashtag never worry alone. Everybody. We're here from the Rocky Mountain Myrex for Veteran Suicide Prevention in Denver, Colorado. I'm Adam Hoffberg, and thank you for joining us for the next installment of our Short Takes on Suicide Prevention podcast. Today, we will be chatting with Dr. Brian DeBeer. Dr. DeBeer is a clinical research psychologist at the Vision 17 Center of Excellence for Research on Returning War Veterans. Um, this is within the Central Texas Veterans Healthcare System. She's also an assistant professor in psychiatry and behavioral sciences at Texas A&M University. And today we're going to learn a little bit more about her work on post-traumatic stress disorder and suicide risk, um, particularly among veterans from the most recent conflicts, and uh, also learn a little bit more about this Center of Excellence for Research on Returning War Veterans. So uh, welcome, Brian. Thank you so much. It's so nice to be speaking with you all today. Yeah, we're really happy to have you. And especially with some of your recent work coming out. Just excited to check in and hear what's going on. Tell us a little bit about yourself and what led to your work and um, how you came to be at this Center of Excellence at the VA in Texas. Sure. Um, I received my undergraduate training at New York University. Um, My degree is in psychology and fine arts. And I completed my graduate training at the University of Maryland College Park uh, in clinical psychology. So that's uh, what my PhD is in. I'm actually from Arizona originally, so I was trying to head back from the East Coast back to the West, and so I ended up completing my clinical internship at the Central Texas Veterans Healthcare System. While I was completing that training, I did a rotation here at the Vision 17 Center of Excellence for Research on Returning War Veterans. So this center focuses on post-deployment mental health um, in veterans of the most recent conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan with a particular emphasis on post-traumatic stress disorder and traumatic brain injury. During my rotation, I found that the research that they were conducting here was very exciting, and it was really where I wanted to move forward in my career. So I applied for a position after graduation, and I've been here since that time. And as I started working in the VA, it became very clear to me that, that one of the most pressing issues we face is suicide prevention. So if a veteran dies by suicide, we really have no further chance for intervention with them. So as it was the biggest challenge that we're facing, I I decided to make it uh, the focus of my research. Our wonderful VA secretary, Dr. Shulkin, also agrees with this perspective, and suicide prevention is his top priority. Um, So I'm uh, working on that mission that we have here. Yeah, that's so great to really have the full support behind our efforts in suicide prevention. And again, I'm really excited to learn more about your work today, particularly zooming in on PTSD. And, you know, a lot of folks know of PTSD. They may work with veterans who have PTSD, but what do we really know about the relationship between PTSD and suicide? 
because, you know, I don't want to draw too many oversimplify it, but I also know that it sounds like PTSD is a risk factor. Can you tell us more about that? Sure. So, you know, with our post-9-11 veterans, um, a recent meta-analysis indicates that about 23% experience post-traumatic stress disorder, so approximately one in four returning veterans. So a, a common um, thing that happens with this population, which I think is something that we don't really talk about um, enough. So when I see veterans in clinical practice, many of them comment that they feel alone uh, struggling with this disorder. And I think it would do a tremendous amount of good to just first talk about how PTSD is you know, a common reaction to the trauma that people face during combat. And you know, we really need to work as a community to address um, what's happening within this population. You know, the association between PTSD and suicide is complicated. So there are many studies indicating that there is a link between PTSD and suicidal ideation and behavior. Uh, for example, one study, um, you know, post-9-11 veterans with PTSD were four times more likely to report suicidal ideation in comparison to post-9-11 veterans without post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, you know, in work from my group, we found that if someone experiences both PTSD and major depressive disorder, significantly raises the risk of suicide attempts over a 12-month period in post-9-11 veterans. Uh, my colleague Nathan Cabral is um, the first author on that study. You know, but there is another study where they used uh, data from the medical records of nearly 6 million veterans uh, with PTSD. That is really important because the more um, people you have uh, participating in this study, the larger your sample size, the more power you have to detect whether effects are significant. So in that study, which was conducted by Dr. Ken Connor at uh, the Vision 2 COE, um, PTSD was associated with death by suicide. But when other mental health disorders were controlled for, this association was not significant. But there are debates within the literature currently regarding whether this, these other disorders, such as major depressive disorder, should be controlled for in analyses like this. I think that overall, when you look at the evidence as a whole, it does point to a link between PTSD and increased risk for self-directed violence. Yeah, thanks for that explanation. Uh, really helpful and, again, helping to frame the issue around why this topic is so important because it is impacting so many veterans. But just kind of flipping this on its head, a lot of your research focuses on protective factors and buffers against suicide risk. And, you know, I was really excited to see a recent write-up in SciPost on one of your published articles in PLOS1. I was really, again, struck by this idea that you're looking to protect and prevent suicide through modifiable factors. Can you tell us uh, what do we mean by modifiable factors and, you know, how, how, what does this look like? Sure. So a lot of the identified risk factors for suicide are things that are beyond our control. So, for example, having a history of a prior suicide attempt places someone at higher risk for, for a future death by suicide. Unfortunately, that's something that we can't change. But there are other risk factors that are modifiable. Uh, for example, things like maladaptive thoughts, um, hopelessness and, and things of that nature, we know those things are modifiable through interventions like cognitive behavioral therapy. I try to focus 
in unmodifiable risk factors that haven't been examined yet um, as we can translate those findings into clinical interventions with the goal of preventing suicide. So in terms of an example of how you'd apply this um, this focus, you know, we may be able to um, either use programs that we already have. Um, so, for example, um, the MOVE program or other um, nutritional programs that we already have within VA. So, one of the nice things about being in VA is that we there's a vast system with many resources. So, can we somehow leverage these resources in the service in a different way than we're currently doing in the service of suicide prevention. I want to talk a little bit more about the MOVE program and what it is, because I think going back to the side post article, it was all about sort of promoting health behaviors. And sure. or, so what does that mean? And you know, how does the MOVE program fit in there? So health promoting behaviors refer to a set of activities and behaviors that positively impact an individual's health. So in our study, we examined health-promoting behavior, health behaviors broadly defined. So for example, things like nutrition, physical activity, stress management, health responsibility, um, which is an active sense of accountability for one's own well-being, interpersonal relationships, and spiritual growth. We looked at that in a very broad way, and it was done via the veteran's own self-report. So the MOVE program is an existing program within the VA currently that focuses on um, increasing exercise as a means of health promotion. So that would fit in with the health promoting behaviors that we examined. So that would be one way to translate this research into clinical practice is to see if programs like the MOVE program, um, which increases physical activity, will also be helpful in um, the service of suicide prevention. So, for example, um, currently when, um, when someone um, comes in to get an assessment for post-traumatic stress disorder, we typically don't send them um, out for referral to the MOVE program or to a nutritionist. And that could be something that we could change within our system fairly easily so that when someone comes in um, and they are diagnosed with PTSD, that they get these further referrals so that they can um, start engaging in health-promoting behaviors more. However, we need to conduct more research to see if this is an effective suicide prevention strategy. It really expands what we think of as suicide prevention, and I'm really glad that you know you brought this point up because as we always talk about historically, suicide prevention is like a mental health thing, and it really sounds like um, you're trying to move this into a more holistic approach, looking at nutrition, physical exercise. Could you just say more about that? Sure, absolutely. So one of um, the things our great uh, director of the Office of VA Office of Suicide Prevention often says is suicide prevention is everyone's business, and I really firmly believe that very much. We really need to be getting everyone involved um, in the most effective ways possible so that we can combat this problem of suicide that we're experiencing within our veteran community. And this office has done a lot of that work. So for example, this office has expanded suicide prevention into healthcare areas that haven't typically been associated with suicide prevention, such as primary care. The VA is really on the cutting edge of this type of work. 
um, you know, everybody who comes through primary care gets uh, screening to see if they are experiencing suicidal ideation. And then uh, they have uh, referrals for those individuals in order to connect them with mental health care. Uh, this office has also created suicide prevention coordinator positions, and these um, suicide prevention coordinators facilitate suicide prevention activities across the healthcare system. So they do a lot of training with our staff and a lot of community outreach regarding suicide prevention, as well as case management for our veterans who are experiencing suicide prevention. So we have made um, a lot of beneficial changes for our veterans. But we also must strive to identify innovative improvements that can aid in suicide prevention as well, which is a lot of what my work does. Tell us the basics around this study that you did in PLOS 1 around health-promoting behaviors. Sure. So basically what we found was that um, in individuals with high PTSD symptoms, if they were engaging in health-promoting behaviors, they had far fewer thoughts of suicide than those with high PTSD symptoms who did not engage in health-promoting behaviors. So this research suggests that addressing health-promoting behaviors may be a potentially useful area of intervention. As you already mentioned, there are some limitations to this study um, in terms of cross-sectional what kind of conclusions can we draw, you know, moving forward from this kind of research? I think the implications of this research are that helping veterans with some of these other health-promoting behaviors in which we haven't typically associated with uh, mental health treatment, including things like nutrition and exercise and um, things of that nature, um, may aid in suicide prevention, but we need to do a lot more research to determine um, whether that's an effective method. Got it. Some of your other research is looking at body mass index and obesity and its relationship, again, all tying into how maybe exercise and nutrition might be interventions. What do we know about obesity and suicide risk among veterans with PTSD? Sure. This is excellent work that was done by my uh, research assistant, uh, Ms. Julie Kittle, who's actually moving on to a PD PhD program in epidemiology at the University of Rochester this fall. You know, it, one way that veterans are dif a different population than the general population is that we know that at one time in their lives, they were at peak physical condition, which is not always the case with the general population. So when a veteran experiences obesity, we know that it, it, it's a significant change um, in their health status from where they were at a previous point in our life, in their life. So what we found in our research was that if someone had high PTSD symptoms and they had a BMI in the obese range, they were much more likely to experience suicidal ideation than a veteran who was in the normal range for BMI. So you know, again, the implications of this research are that you know when a clinician sees a veteran uh, with PTSD, we typically don't, um, you know, assess BMI or think about their weight that much, but that could be a, a sign that this veteran may be at higher risk um, for experiencing suicidal ideation than a veteran who's at the normal range of BMI. So I think other implications of this as well are, you know, as clinicians, a lot of the time we're not really liaising with 
um, physicians or other people in our healthcare system who do a lot of the health promotion work. So I think that as a clinician, you know, making connections with people who do this work within your system and then making referrals for these veterans as well. You know, but again, we would need to conduct future research to determine whether this was an effective suicide prevention strategy. Right, but certainly sounds promising. And again, sounds like something that, you know, at the very least can improve quality of life and, and, you know, ultimately, hopefully we'll get some research showing that, you know, these programs are effective suicide prevention strategies. Um, Absolutely. And the great thing is that they're already in place. So we don't even need to develop these programs. You know, we can really, if we do find out that they're effective, we can really hit the ground running. So just thinking about next steps, a lot of this research so far, as I understand, has been what we think of as observational. So sort of just learning more about these issues and their connections and relationships with each other. Where do you see you taking your research um, in this area next? I think the next steps of the of my health research are to determine if leveraging these existing VA resources like the MOVE program and nutrition consults are effective in preventing suicide. When a veteran comes in for PTSD treatment, uh, we could also have consults for the MOVE program and um, a nutrition consult, and then we could follow them prospectively and and look at their outcomes and see if uh, this was helpful in preventing suicide. You know, obviously we would need some sort of comparison group, most likely people coming in for PTSD treatment and not receiving those other um, consults as well. So we would need to conduct some thorough research to determine if that was an effective strategy. And if it was an effective strategy, what we could do is we could disseminate that um, nationally. That sounds great. Um, and definitely look forward to hearing more about that. Just shifting gears slightly, but again, still focusing on this idea of modifiable factors. What does some of your research talk about social support and social support networks, and how might they uh, serve as sort of a buffer against suicide? A lot of the time when I see veterans clinically, they um, typically don't have a very, uh, some of them don't have very strong social support network. And what we know about that is that when people have low social support, they're at higher risk for suicide. In fact, I've done some of that research, um, and what we found is that it's particularly true for veterans in the post-deployment period. So my research indicates that when PTSD symptoms are high and someone had high post-deployment social support, they experience much lower suicidal ideation than veterans with high PTSD symptoms who had low social support. High post-deployment social support is wiping out this link between PTSD and suicidal ideation. So social support is an incredibly important risk factor, um, which may be able to be modified through intervention. Could you give us an example of how um, we might intervene in a in a in a veteran social support networks? There are programs that are already developed to modify social support, like social skills training programs. Um, that assist people in increasing their social skills so that they're better able to garner social support. However, these types of interventions really haven't been applied to people with PTSD. More innovative work in this area, which is being done at 
the University of California, Los Angeles, and the West LAVA and University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, among other places, focuses on something else that's called social cognition. So social cognition are the skills that underlie social interaction. So things like being able to perceive facial displays of emotion on someone else's face or being able to accurately understand social cues. So there's some evidence that there are deficits in these skill, skills in individuals diagnosed with um, PTSD, um, particularly because people with PTSD are very sensitive to threat. So they may be misperceiving some of these social cues. And I received VA grant funding to, to further study this phenomenon in veterans with PTSD. And I'm submitting a paper for publication soon that provides further evidence of this uh, deficit in social cognition. You know, it just makes a lot of conceptual sense to me because a lot of individuals diagnosed with PTSD who I've worked with in a clinical context are often focused on threats in the environment, so they're not accurately reading these social cues, and that likely interferes with social interaction. I think another piece of this in veterans with PTSD are something that I call PTSD-related behaviors. So, for example, a symptom of PTSD is called hypervigilance or feeling like you're on guard against threat all the time, and that's a really common symptom of PTSD, particularly in um, combat veterans. And this symptom manifests behaviorally uh, as an example, you know, when people are in a room and they don't want their back facing the door because they don't know what kind of threat is coming at them. Um, people with PTSD will often face the door, even when that means that they won't be facing the person that they're talking to. So when you're having a social interaction with someone and they don't face you, they face away from you, it, it's, kind, it's an unusual social interaction, and it likely negatively affects that social interaction. That person seems like they're not interested in you. Or, or really interested in the interaction. I've noticed a lot of behaviors like this in individuals with PTSD in my clinical work. So I've created a measure that assesses this type of behavior. We're, uh, we've collected data on that measure and we're running initial psychometrics and I'm going to present this work at the International Society of Traumatic Stress Studies in the fall. So I think it's really a two, two-fold situation in people with PTSD. It's that they're not accurately perceiving all of the social cues in the environment, and then they're also engaging in behaviors that may lead others to believe that they're not interested in interacting with that person. That's really helpful. And so, as you mentioned, you can start to see how maybe these um, opportunities for intervention to build social skills and social cognition could be an, a suicide prevention strategy that we need to test and perhaps roll out more widely inside the VA. Social cognition is modifiable, and there are um, treatments that are already developed to address social cognition, but those strategies haven't been used with PTSD populations at all, much less as suicide prevention strategies. So that's what my work focuses on, and, and I'm seeking to translate this work um, into um, interventions, and the goal would be to use these techniques to boost social support so that there are significant gains in social functioning for veterans with PTSD, but also it will hopefully um, prevent suicide as well, um, trying to boost that 
um, buffering factor of social support in service of um, preventing suicide. So I'm in the process of preparing all this research for publication and applying for further grant funding to study this uh, phenomenon. So stay tuned. Yeah, we'll be yeah, uh, so keeping tuned. an eye out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'd, and um, as we always like to say, uh, we'd love to have you back to, to, to hear updates as, as this uh, line of research progresses. Um, one great. other, yeah, thank you. Um, one other area I just wanted to touch on was actually a brand new publication I just saw came out, and I believe this one was with a sample of veterans with TBI, but it's looking at sleep quality. And again, yes. thinking about modifiable factors, sleep seems mm -hmm. to be just a really uh, great opportunity for intervention. Tell us about this work and where you see um, its implications. So many veterans returning from the conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan have experienced traumatic brain injury, uh, particularly in theater. And we know that traumatic brain injury is associated with difficulty sleeping. And we also know that problems with sleep are associated with suicidal ideation and behavior. So I wanted to bring all of these constructs together and see if um, traumatic brain injury increased problems with sleep and if that further increased suicidal ideation. The thing that's different about this study is that we use the Pittsburgh Sleep Quality Index, and that's a 19-item self-report instrument which measures sleep quality over a one-month period. And so this measure really goes in depth about someone's sleep habit and, you know, how long are they sleeping, um, you know, are they having fatigue during the day because they're having problems sleeping? So a lot of the time when this research is conducted, it's um, using measures that maybe one item measures on sleep, on sleep. So are you having problems sleeping, yes or no? So this study really took a, a deep dive into that sleep dysfunction in order to understand those associations. And what we did find is that traumatic brain injury does raise the risk of poor sleep quality, and that further raises the risk of suicidal ideation in post-9-11 veterans. So I think in terms of impl excuse me, implications, we have recently rolled out cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia within the VA, so we now have many clinicians who are trained in that modality. And so if we're having uh, veterans who are returning, you know, with TBI and they're reporting problems with sleep um, and they are at risk for suicide, it may be helpful to use an intervention like that to help them increase their sleep and also increase the quality of their sleep as well. So it's not just having problems sleeping. It's you know, it's not just sleeping for a shorter period or not getting enough sleep. It's really increasing that quality of sleep as well. There hasn't been any research done on that, to my knowledge, of looking at cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia as a suicide prevention strategy, but that could be a potential um, future direction of this research is, is seeing if that um, type of therapy has beneficial effects in terms of suicide prevention. Yeah, definitely. And just as a little uh, teaser, we do have a researcher, uh, Dr. Sara Nazem, who just got funded for a study sort of examining some of this on a, uh online CBTI uh, intervention. Oh, that's so, so um, great. 
Yeah, so some really exciting work around sleep and suicide prevention, um, and hopefully a really um, ripe opportunity to, to, you know, improve quality of life and save lives, ultimately. Absolutely. So I want to sort of just uh, have you, as we wind down, kind of wrap this up or tie it together. You know, we've talked about a lot of different uh, modifiable factors and where this research can go in the future. Um, any sort of takeaways folks can start to, you know, use right now while we store sort of still sort of build the evidence base behind some of these strategies and just visions for the future as well? I think in terms of my health promoting um, behaviors research, a psychologist, many of us, I'm sure some psychologists do this, but I, I don't think that everyone does. You know, we we typically don't assess um, people's exercise or nutrition, and getting a better um, understanding of your client's exercise behavior, nutrition may help you make further recommendations to them. So I think encouraging your client to start an exercise or nutrition program if if they aren't already, is probably going to be beneficial to them on many levels. It will probably increase their overall health. So if we, at this point, even if we can't be certain that integrating um, exercise or nutrition programs will prevent suicide, even if we can't say that definitively, we can probably say that it's going to increase the client's health. So, you know, being a mental health practitioner, just encouraging those types of behaviors to your clients, I think, is, is something that um, we can do now. Um, I also think that as uh, psych- psychologists or mental health practitioners, um, we don't do a very good job of assessing social support. And I think that's really important. Understanding your client's social network and how that may help them in terms of stress management. And so, you know, doing those assessments and then working that into clinical practice by, you know, encouraging the maintenance of these quality social connections that are helpful and also finding new social connections and developing um, a social network if someone doesn't have that already. But again, further research is needed to determine if um, steps like this will prevent suicide. Another thing that I'm working on that I haven't told you about is um, developing a program in which we incorporate Um, a concerned significant other into safety planning interventions for veterans who are experiencing suicidal ideation and behavior. So we've conducted an initial um, quality improvement study to see if veterans and their concerned significant others are interested in this type of program. And um, the vast majority of people said that that they would be interested in this type of program. Um, For listeners who aren't as familiar with safety planning for suicide prevention, this is a standard intervention that we conduct within VA. And um, the safety plan is developed by a clinician and uh, the veteran. The safety plan goes over steps that the veteran can take when they're experiencing suicidal ideation. So it starts with, you know, recognizing warning signs and it works its way up in terms of intervention to um, calling the veteran's crisis line if that's what the veteran is in need of. So typically that plan is just created between the veteran and the provider. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to see if bringing in a concerned significant other, so a spouse, friend, adult child, bringing in that concerned significant other and helping with development of that plan and then helping put that plan into action if that's Um, going to be helpful in terms of suicide prevention 
you know, because it'll help boost social support, taking away that risk factor, but it'll also help the veteran enact the plan uh, when they're experiencing suicidal ideation and behavior. So we're applying for further funding to conduct that uh, type of research. And then again, I think, you know, I have said this um, already, but I do really think that it's important for us to understand if leveraging these health promotion resources that we already have provides uh, further benefits in terms of suicide prevention. Very fascinating work. And again, would love to have you back to keep touching base on, on updates in this area. That'd be so great. Um, and I want to, again, thank you for your time today, Brian, and also you and your colleagues from the Center of Excellence for Research on Returning War Veterans. I'm really excited to learn more about what's been going on at your center. Um, before I let you go, any sort of closing remarks or final thoughts? It's just such a uh, a pleasure to work on this research. It's it's so rewarding, and I, I just really enjoy conducting this research in service of the veterans, and I uh, really love working at the VA and working at the center. My goal with this work is to help prevent suicide in veteran populations. Great. Well, that'll be it for the Short Takes podcast today. Listeners, we, of course, appreciate you all for tuning in. Um, you can learn more about Dr. DeBeer. You can uh, check out all these work, uh, all these publications that we've been talking about today. We're going to include the links to accompany this podcast. We always invite you to reach out to us with questions, comments, um, any feedback about this work. Take a moment to subscribe, share with your colleagues. And until next time, join us for more interviews on important work in suicide prevention, resilience, and well-being.